you know, you get a Skype call, it will start recording, or oh, that is the idea. I'm right. so sorry. That's all right, everything okay? <laughs> my, my son got up to go for a week, and in his days, he's just gone to the top of the stairs, and he's never done this before. <laughs> And just lead down the stairs. He's never done that before. And my wife's just like, Ross, he's coming give me a And I'm like, no, it's you, Yeah, so long as you don't pick him up before he's finished, you're okay. Otherwise, it just goes horribly wrong. He's yeah. walking the toilet now, he's walking to the top of the stairs. Thing is, he's 18 years old, so you know, you shouldn't pass this, but. Funny thing is, my 18 year old probably would still do that. I mean, that's he's on the piss every night, but. Um... Well, come on, lads, we've all been there. Yeah, oh, yeah, we've all, we've all been there. He's only five, so we can forgive. Oh, we can right, forgive. Right, yeah. I mean, he hasn't looked at the staircase <laughs> and thought, I want a water slide in this. <laughs> yeah, let's just go for it. Well, I tell you what, we've had some blues in our time, Dan, but for goodness, that's got to be the best looper you can put in your show for. <laughs> oh, yes, don't worry, I want to start doing some bloopers, especially with this movie. It's going to be perfect. Excellent. Uh, Space time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Scene 1, Part 2, Episode 9. We are in 1986, we're watching The Voyage Home. Um, everybody knows it, it's the one with the whales. Uh, but I'm not going to let that take my uh, review at the very end, we'll come to that later. But I'm not going to be alone again. Uh, Paul, I think, is still on the line. Are you there, Paul? You know what, this is going to be the longest hold I've ever had. Good beef. what's this, what, 70 it's, hold? It's just, uh, take a few decades, you know, there you go. But we are also joined by another guest. Oh, um, hang on a second, I'm just going to dial up on the device. Can you hear me? You're in. Fantastic. Excellent. Uh, Ross, um, now, listeners probably don't know you as well as they've known Paul because they've got to know him over the past four episodes. Um, Ross, where might people know you from? Well, I'm uh, Ross Wester and I am on Twitter and all lot posting about Star Trek. It is a, a lot of Star Trek on my Twitter feed, so if you want to have, uh, find me there at strtrk1701 and some Star Trek, I'm usually always there. Fantastic. Excellent. Um, and I believe you also have a podcast. Is that true? That's right. So the podcast is at Snap Track. Uh, a really fun take, uh, look at two episodes of Star Trek and we compare the similarity of differences. We always pick a pair of episodes that have like a thematic connection or a link somehow and really sort of try and dive deep into what the differences are, what similarities are. Let's play a game about which one is the best. It is fantastic. It really is fantastic. Um, I implore anyone to go out and listen to Snapdick. It's one of those ideas that when you hear it, just kick yourself. Why did I come up with that? That's such an idea. You take two episodes with almost even the identical premise. It's almost the exact same thing. And you just compare the two. It's fantastic. Uh, but you're not alone in that show. Who else do you uh, present that with? So my co-host is Jen uh, at Quarks. She is a fantastic co-host phenomenally knowledgeable Trekkie, 
always has amazing opinions and amazing takes so fantastic to talk talk with her every couple of weeks absolutely love it and you both have some fantastic poetry as well which i always love about that show um the little poems at the beginning i absolutely love them well we just knew that everybody the people who are going to be listening to our show they already know star trek inside out so they don't need a recap of the show for them so we thought we'll do it a differently just spin a little poem or a limerick just to get the flavour of the show and then go straight into it. <laughs> that perfect segue, I think, into getting started. Um, speaking of knowing Star Trek in and out, I think watching this was the hardest rewatch I've ever done so far because it was so easy to just get lost in the episode and keep playing without making any notes. The amount of rewinds I had to do on the Skybox yep. is just unbelievable. Uh, speaking of Skybox, yes, we are in the UK. We are three UK people trying to watch the Star Trek movies, but they are not on any streaming devices. So I have gone through Sky, but I believe you have both gone through your DVD collections. I have um, not got it on DVD collection as such, uh, because I had to make room one day on the computer and get rid of a few, so I had to get rid of you know some <coughs> dodgy copies of um, <laughs> the uh, original uh, films. So what I had to do is I had to walk for five minutes I had to go out of my house, walk for five minutes to my local DVD store, to local DVD rental store, and pick up a copy of the uh, Voyage Home and walk back home with it. But this is 1986. It's a blockbuster, <laughs> I presume. Yeah. Yes, it was a blockbuster. Oh, it is a blockbuster. There used to be a blockbuster manager, yeah. So, yes. Ah, oh, that's so, a... and, he, and he played a blinder because when I got home and I opened it, there was two discs there. So I've had watched it with the commentary on. So maybe you've got some yourself. Ooh, interesting. Well, I'm I'm not the behind the scenes. As far as I'm concerned, this is real history. But in your universe, in your timeline, we're watching this as a TV show. So bring anything you want to the table is absolutely fine. Um, speak of, we've got an hour to get through, so let's get on, shall we? Um, we are going to start at time index thirty-five minutes thirty-four seconds. We start with. Kirk awakening on board the ship, and it's the scene where we finally discover Earth, as Kirk likes to pronounce it. Uh, very overpronounced, there we go. And we get uh, a, a sense they are back in time because of the pollution content in the atmosphere. Uh, before we sort of go anywhere with this, the opening scene, sort of, you know, just getting a sense of bearings, any thoughts on this scene so far? Well, at least they didn't have to pick up Uhura this time. Yes. There was a lot of manhand last episode, but this episode seems absolutely fine. It was nice that they got to fall asleep. I thought that was a, it was a very high-energy transport back in time. And at the end of it, it's just that they're all gently asleep. I thought, wow, that's, that's nice. It's slingshot and chill. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah why not? <laughs> Um, they're also picking up Whale Song as they're into the atmosphere. Um, they've got some really good speakers on this uh, culling on spaceship. Um, I think mixing desk that Uhura uses later in this well is pretty impressive. Um, I think it's more attuned for the 90s than the 80s. It's not as much the speakers, it's the flipping microphones. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear you hear whale song from like 200 metres deep. I mean, you know, loads of atmosphere yeah, and it's space. It's incredible. I mean, microphones that work through a vacuum are really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I'd really use some, actually, on this podcast, but there we go. We're also into the first problem, however, that the dilithium crystals are lose power. Now, this is the first instance of me in my travels seeing dilithium crystals, but I think this is actually the first time we ever see dilithium crystals in Trek. 
any thoughts on that? I think um, I can't remember seeing any in like the TOS era or even the anime series. I'm sure in Elana Troyes she's wearing a necklace made of dilithium crystals, and they—that's why the Klingons are so interested in her planet. I think. Um, So I think you do see some then in in the original series. Ah, memory. That's very good. I I, I only recently watched the episode. I'm not just (laughs) obsessed with dilithium crystals. I did just watch the episode. That's fine. I won't judge you if you've got a phone with everything Google on it. Absolutely fine. I have to do the exact same thing here. Um, But it's a very odd conversation, I think, with... um, Scotty says that they can't re-energise crystals in the 23rd century, but literally seconds later, Spock comes up with a way that the 20th century could do it. Now, is there no safer way that they can do it in the 23rd century? I really thought it was a very brief problem, isn't it? Because Scott, Scott can't be done. 20 seconds later, Spock solved it. Totally doable, even now. But yeah, he can, I mean, this guy can break into safe, no problem. He's, you know, he knows exactly what he's doing. Like a no, shout, no one's challenged him on this. Like you've been sitting on this idea for three hundred years. This has been a real problem for us. He just, he just figured it out. <laughs> this should be like Bill and Ted. Isn't it? They should be saying Spock should want to say, well, actually. I think you'll find that back in the um, 1980s, a certain person uh, uh, had this idea of, uh, oh, wait a minute, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> and I've just left some lying around here somewhere. <laughs> it did make me think of, like, every time you go into, like, a garage mechanics, you know, you've got the professional one who says, no, nah, sorry, that can't be done. That's not that's not a problem. But then Jeff comes along. It's like, um, just take the car around the back, about 20 quid. I'll do it for you. No problem whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, be ready to choose. Spot, that's spot. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we uh, also get uh, the solution to uh, the age problem of what do you do with the Vulcan and his ears Uh, any thoughts on the Karate Kid inspired which is apt considering Karate Kid 2 came out this year Um, but uh, any thoughts on how they solve the problem well I just thought they they must have known it's going to be a problem He's he's gone back in time so many times Chinese rice picker um, he wears a hat, he wears a helmet uh, he knows it's a problem and I, I went straight to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because that is that, that's what I thought of but uh, I don't know whether it actually even aired then at that point but that was that was my first thought but, he, but he's, he's wearing this white cloak or white judo top and then he puts this bandana around his head, he walks on the earth and nobody comes up and says oh you only wore a white belt are you uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh it's another bit of a sort of a tie to some of the previous episodes as well. As they're going over San Francisco, we learn that Sulu was uh, born there, but McCoy also says it doesn't look all that different. Now, I've uh, recorded a few episodes ago uh, in an alternate timeline where they flew over 1940s San Francisco and said it didn't look all that different from the 21st century. Does San Francisco change? Is there like an, a universal thing about San Francisco? Surely something's been built in the last 300 years to make it a little bit different from that high up. I, I wrote the exact same note. Thought back to Zero Hour. I, I, I felt a bit scornful of Mayweather, who couldn't tell the difference between alternate World War Two San Francisco and 22nd century San Francisco. But then maybe it just looks like, you know, you're high up, aren't you? you know, you're just seeing the land masses and the ocean. Maybe maybe you can't tell the difference, maybe, you know? But I had to, I had to give... I have to apologize to Mayweather. <laughs> I mean, surely, surely, um, you know, they, they fly over San Francisco and go, well, it's exactly the same, except for the academy. Uh, that <laughs> big <laughs> building should be over there, <laughs> by the bridge. Maybe it's just cloudy every day and there's fog over it all the time and nobody knows. Who knows? Um, 
we get the parking scene, uh, the first sort of big laugh out moment, I think. Um, you get the two dustbin guys um, just having a talk about toaster ovens, uh, $60 toaster ovens, which, uh, looking through the historical research, that's actually pretty expensive for a, a toaster oven mm. for today. Uh, a portable colour TV will set you back $290. Uh, so if a touch oven is already $60, that's uh, that's quite a lot for just a small piece of kit. Um, so I'm on his side uh, in the argument. Um, but yes, your thoughts on uh, remember where we parked? That is a line I still use today. <laughs> I Since 1986. If I'm with my family, well, I didn't have a family six, but if, if, you know, if we all go out somewhere, we park the car, I walk away and the first thing I say is, now everybody remember where we parked? And... Two, two of them get the uh, the you know, uh, the joke straight away, which are my two lads, which I'm proud to say. My sort of rolls her eyes and goes, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, right." Okay. <laughs> it's, it, it's a brilliant line. I love it. It is a particularly funny scene, and to see Bin get crushed as well. What an unnecessary little bit. It just adds <laughs> to the coolness of the idea. They're landing a bird of prey in the park, and they don't even think like, "Do we need to?" Do we need to like make up a story for why people are walking into this invisible wall? No, <laughs> let's just ignore it. Everyone has left this bit of the park. The bin men leave, never comes back. Yeah, you, only, you only really see it in the night time, don't you? But it is there during the day because they are there for a you know, good period of the day. They, they go out and they are in the daylight. Surely this thing is still there. Yeah. <laughs> people are still walking around, running into it. And... We see joggers going through it and no one notices just the depression, let alone the trash can, just the, the depression in the ground that wasn't there before. What is going on? We cut to the city. Um, the double dumbass on you scene. I'm going to encompass everything to that because it's it's just a brilliant line. I, I love that. Um, but we do now get our newspaper. But before we move on, the double dumbass on you. Any comments? Oh, it's not the double dumbass on you. I just again one of my favourite scenes is where they're all stood there and, and they get their hands out the money that he's just got, and he walks away. He says, "Look, they spread out. You look like a reviewer, cadet reviewing." And the way that all of the actors just then look around at each other and then try to walk in different directions but in the same direction, and then <laughs> just and then Kirk just like waves his arm and goes, "Oh, forget it." <laughs> it's hilarious. It's so brilliant. I mean, just just a little bit of a scene here, Obviously, you know, filmed. Uh, on location contains some of the funniest moments in the entire film for me I think it's just hilarious a lot of it improvised which we'll come back to a bit later I'm sure <laughs> Ross yeah it just it's hilariously funny and the whole bit the whole bit about them just standing there and not knowing what to do and then them feeling really self-conscious about oh maybe maybe we do look strange but then they never not one of them integrates in the entire film. Maybe Kirk. Kirk can just about integrate into the uh, 21st century. No one else can in the 20th century. No one else can do that. Um, everyone else is just really a fish out of water. It is very funny. <laughs> and the way they're chatting people, and when you know improvise, and you know that some of the people were just walking past, that makes it even weirder <laughs> that they were just doing it. It was really happening. <laughs> that's, that's what said. I mean, the only commentary they said, basically... They said to um, Sulu and uh, right, they said, look, just ask people. Uh, you know, all you need to know is where is the nuclear vessels? Say vessels, right? You can say vessels. That's the only thing I want you to say. The rest of it, just make it up. And they literally got people, actors or you know extras there, and said, right, okay, walk up to them and improvise everything. Just you know, say whatever you like, or don't, or just nod, say you don't know, or just walk off. If you, you know, don't say anything, except one woman who went up and actually said a few words. 
and she was there and the only reason she was there is because she had had a car towed away because of the filming that was happening in the in the, at the time went up to them and said you know can you can i do something that you know i need to pay this fine uh, that i've got for my car being towed away and so well okay we'll go, go up there and, and, and just do a bit of acting so she went there and she said uh, oh uh, alameda i think it's an alameda alameda over that way and because she spoke, they then said, right, OK, that's really good. It was a great scene. Loved what you said. They signed her, gave, got to sign a contract. She then got paid and was therefore allowed to pay off a cut buying fine. I love it. I love it. That's like his coming full circle right there. That's, that's perfect. That's right. That's right. And also the, the, the policeman is an actual policeman. He's a, a, he was a, a proper cop that was part of the security for that area while they were doing it. And they said to, uh, to Sulu and, and Uhura, go up to him, ask him where it is. And they just to the cop. Just stare at them. Don't say anything. Just stare at them. And what does it see? It does drive me. This is another theme coming up with this scene. Uh, in the previous episodes, we've had a questionable choice from Kirk on who goes on away missions. Why do you send the Russian in a time of the Cold War to go and find the nuclear vessel? It was a very strange choice. <laughs> but maybe he didn't realise, maybe he didn't think it was a thing. But I did think... Of all of jobs, that might be the hardest job to do. We, we need to go and find a nuclear reactor, Chekhov and Uhura. We need some, we need some glass. We'll send Scotty, Bones and Chekhov to all that, and Sulu and Sal out. But there's three of them going to get the glass. One of them's going to do anything to a nuclear reactor. I was like, this is terrible. <laughs> we'll come more into this in a moment. Um, I love that they're using the yellow pages as well. Uh, but they seem. Oh, I didn't know. They seem. Yeah. Oh, exactly. oh, oh yeah. Was, yeah. Jump wall. <laughs> yeah. Again, painted on the wall just for that scene. <laughs> no way. Yeah. That is wild. Oh. I can't believe. That. <laughs> but it's just, it's also the fact that there's a random argument just going past them as well. It's not just they walk past the wall and turn round. It's just that there's a couple having a complete argument. Was that was that in the script? Was that actually supposed to be out there? I, th- I think that was scripted because originally it was supposed to be a billboard and they were supposed to look around and see the billboard, but they, said, but they couldn't really get anywhere to do it properly. So they said, why don't we just paint it on this wall? <laughs> so so that's why they just stood there and then they look around and go, ah, yeah, oh, there, right. Okay. <laughs> um, there were a couple of podcasts, I forget the name of it now, a few years ago, who were also reviewing this movie and wondered if they were going to try and go the route that this was Sulu's parents having an argument or like, Sulu's ancestors having an argument. Um, there is actually a scene which was uh, they couldn't film. Um, the idea was when uh, Sulu is, uh, I think they're looking at, a, at a, the Yellow Pages uh, phone book, uh, a young child, a young uh, Asian child will run into him and look up and they look at each other and he, and he says something or whatever and then runs off. The idea being that that is Sulu's grandfather or great-grandfather. <sighs> But the child who was supposed to be doing the acting got really nervous and was crying a lot, and they couldn't do it. They ran out of time. They couldn't put it in the in the in the scene in the film. Oh. Wouldn't have been brilliant. That would have been a back in that low because he obviously is from San Francisco area, so it's it sort of works. You know, his lineage is from that area. So uh, I, I just went grand, you know, grandfather nod to time and all this thing. It would have been quite a, quite a good little scene uh, if you knew. Oh, that's right. Uh, the other uh, shouts uh, Hiraku, Hiraku. So uh, it's obviously the same name. You know, so nice, nice, very nice. 
Um, here's scene though, we do get a new paper, and that is the only sort of direct reference to time and sort of placing us in their thing. We're going to pause here, we're going to go to the history bit. So, 1986. First of all, this newspaper does not exist. This is a fictional newspaper made not only for this movie, but also is used by the production company behind the movie because it does appear in other um, TV and films as well, including the time travel uh, series Journeyman from the early 2000s, uh, which was a time travel sort of show about a guy going back in time and putting right once, what once went wrong. Hmm. Never heard of that before. Um, but um, uh, that was also there as well. So this fictional newspaper does exist in other TV media. But 1986, in January, unfortunately, we're not going to start on a nice story. Um, it is the Challenger disaster. Now, this movie is dedicated to that. We don't see it in this scene. It is at the beginning of the movie. But it, you can't watch this film without uh, talking about the Challenger. I absolutely loved the shuttles. It was my era. Um, I remember the running home from school to watch the first launch, uh, which was then delayed. Um, and ironically, I actually went to Florida a couple of years ago and went to see Discovery, the Discovery they have there, the big, you know, the, shot, the original shuttle, <clears throat> and spoke to uh, uh, the guy uh, who said he he said I said which bit did you work on? He said oh I work on uh, this bit here with a laser pen pointed to the computers. And I said ah so it was your fault then. I said, what's that? And I said, it didn't take off the first time. He said, yep. <laughs> I was expecting to defend him. <laughs> and he didn't. He just went, yep, that was us. He said, yeah. So it was his section. That, um, so so, I, so that was just something. But, I, you know, I, I absolutely loved the shuttle. I watched you know, all, you know, a lot of the launches. And I remember driving home from work in 1986. I was on the motorway, uh, just about to get home. And I heard on radio that you know, the shuttle had blown up. And of course, I, as soon as I got in, TV was straight on news. Uh, it wasn't 24-hour news then. It was you know you had to wait for the six o'clock news to come on before it, it, it was announced. And to see that, and I was praying. It's the only I'm not a religious man, but I was praying all the way home that they had somehow survived, or you know that, that there would be something that we could get out of this. You know, you know that, uh, is there a gate pod or where did it explode? Was it on the pad or up in the air or how hot was it? And it was like just a horrible thought. And uh, but when as soon as you saw the images, you went, nah. No, they're gone. Mm. Although, ironically, I have read um, reports since that time, which says they were more than likely alive until they hit the water and drowned. Mm. Wow! Oh my goodness. So, yeah, it's uh, not good. No, that's tough. That's tough. Um, Ross, I don't actually know your age, and I'm not going to make you say it on the podcast. Um, I imagine we're roughly the same age. I think so. So I would have been four or five yeah. at the time this film was released. Um, so I have no, I mean, I know the Challenger disaster, but I have no memory of it occurring. And I have no memory of, I know you've got some news items coming up, but to me, these are just things that I know about historically. I don't have any recollection of living through them. Um, although I was around. But uh, it, it's not the same. Not the same as like big first hands and yeah. Paul's account and like having that visceral reaction. Uh, you know, I, I know as much about it from from just reading reading history of Australia really than watching these. Yeah, same. I was uh, three years old. Well, not even three at that point, so I hadn't even turned through. So there's mm. no way I remembered it. But you had a kind of Mandela effect in that it was around you at the same time, so you kind of think you were there at the same time. Uh, and it kind of mixed up with other emotions, and also with later disasters which happened uh, you know, 
yeah. within our adult memory as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest regret for me, as a big base fan, as a NASA fan, is to never have got to see the shuttles take off. I always wanted to go and see shuttle launch. It was always something I wanted to do, but it's never got round to being it. Hopefully, with all the SpaceX going, you know, that might come back. We can finally go watch live space rockets going off. Mm. I've, been, I've been to Florida twice. I've been looking up to Florida twice in my life. Uh, I was 15 years old the first time we went. Uh, my dad uh, took us over there, and we did the usual. We were, uh, the, the Space Hunter. Just as we arrived at the Space Hunter, Dad said to one of the uh, guides, uh, is there a shuttle about? You know, I mean, this, it hadn't taken off at this point. This was 1980. And the guy said, oh, he said, half an hour, you've just missed it. They've just wheeled it away into the, into the building. Half an hour, we just missed actually physically seeing one. Oh. Never saw a takeoff, uh, never went back to Florida until, like I say, about uh, two years ago. Um, so we never saw a shuttle uh, take off and land. We really, really would have gone to, my dad would have loved to have seen that, but we never did. We went over in Florida uh, the, a couple of years ago and we got there and they said there's going to be the first SpaceX uh, rocket going up. We oh, fantastic. This is going to be great. And we went to the um, sorry, it wasn't too, it wasn't the space. It was one. It was another. It was another. Okay, I can't remember. There was going to be a launch that time anyway. Um, we to the uh, to the area. We walked around it. We did all the usual you know, touristy bits, and they said they've delayed it until tomorrow. <laughs> so we got back and said, right, okay, is there any way we can get back there? We're trying to get taxis, but because we were in the middle of Orlando, and this is of course you know a good hours drive or so, um, trying to get back over there is impractical. So when it actually took off, we were sat in the um, Hard Rock Cafe in Universal Studios watching it on my phone. <laughs> I mean, how frustrating. I could have done that. For goodness sake. <laughs> I could have to see that. It's a 4D experience. You've got the heat around you and everything. Yeah, yeah, so you've got that, at least. Um, right, well, moving on. Let's go on to different news. Um, happier news. Uh, now, I'm going to be careful how to say this. In the same month, uh, January 1986, Voyager 2 passes Eurectum. Because actually that was what it changed to uh, in 23.6. What are you laughing about? Laughing. <laughs> to your rep. Oh wait a minute, your type is Uranus. Sorry, Uranus. There we go. Um, in February of this year, we have Halley's Comet. Uh, it reaches its second time this century, coming near to the Sun, and the Mir space station is launched as well in this year. So happy stories. That's nice. Um, unfortunately, April comes round, and it's not April's Fools, it's actually Chernobyl. So, uh, let's do another horrible story whilst we're watching this uh, comedy film. Um, I have not watched the TV show around Chernobyl. I don't, no, don't remember the events of Chernobyl again, three years old. But I do remember a TV show called Threads, which was about nuclear uh, holocaust in the UK. It was sort of like a post-atomic horror British uh, TV show, I think in a couple of years after Chernobyl. But the idea was uh, an atom bomb goes off near London and then uh, society collapses. And it flipped the living daylight out of me as a kid when I was watching it. It was extreme to that point. And again, I kind of have a Mandela effect where that kind of competes with Chernobyl. And I sort of imagine it worse than it actually was. Uh, but it's still a horrific disaster that we're still feeling today. There are still measurable uh, radioactive impacts. Uh, as I think it was, uh, say it's 2016, they're still measuring some of the radioactivity uh, across the hemisphere because of this disaster. Any thoughts on that, on what was going on? 
Yeah, again, at the time, we, we've been living through the, you know, the early 80s, mid-80s, where <clears throat> the, you know, the Cold War was still much on, and tensions were creeping up every now and again, and, and of course, 1984 being sort of the, the earlier sort of the era I remember it as being the worst, although it probably wasn't. And we didn't know if, you know, everybody was saying, you have to build uh, your bunkers in your gardens and, you know, and, and take food down there, and, and you know, this because, you know, if World War III happens... I was thinking, well, but what do you come out to? I mean, at the end of it, you come out, what do you come out to? Nothing. A wasteland. And, mm. and all the films around that era were very much of that sort of breed. I mean, Terminator coming out, you know, sort of around that time. You know, very much, you know, all, all of the films were very downbeat and all about, you know, post apocalyptic, um, you know, scenarios and things. Uh, it, it was something you tried not to dwell on. And then Chernobyl goes and blows up. And first of all, you think, well, okay, it's just a, it's just building with a, you know, okay, a nuclear power plant. Oh, that's a boring. And they start mentioning that the lamb in Wales is affected by it, and we shouldn't be eating it because it's radioactive. And of course, scaremongering newspapers build it up a bit more than it probably was. But to, to see the effects you know, on on the on the food chain over here, I mean, we're thousands of miles away. So it's, it was a sudden realization that because I mean, basically, a nuclear bomb is a big bomb at the end of the day. It's the after effects that are the biggest problem. It's not the actual destruction of what the bomb does, although people in uh, Japan will obviously disagree with that. But the effect is, is wider spread than just you know this little bomb going off and flattening a lot of uh, real estate. It starts to suck up the you know the radiation and throws it around the world. One bomb, one Chernobyl, and that's what's scary. You know, the fact that you know if you put somebody retaliating from a nuclear war, you know this world will disappear. Mm. Um, which is why it was necessary to try and get rid of as much as we could. So now we're down to the point now where dirty bombs and made one bomb is pretty horrible to think of, but could still have a, quite a big effect. But back then, yeah, you suddenly realised just the effect that one of these things could have. And it was all theoretic till then. I mean, yeah, you'd heard about Nagasaki and, and you know, Yokohama and lots of earlier. Nobody had really sort of lived through that recently. And then suddenly that's what it felt like in the middle of the Cold War. It was pretty, pretty frightening. Any thoughts for us? Well, no. Again, it's something I know about from reading reading books and like learning history. And Chernobyl is one of those. I mean, that is a word that's sort of synonymous with radioactive disaster. I grew up knowing that that was a big problem and it was a big a big issue that had happened. But again, not until later in life I actually go back and read about it and find out what it means and what actually occurred. Um, and I don't have that same. The whole idea of the Cold War and the threat of nuclear war, I feel like I only know about that from watching TV shows in the 80s, which were sort of from the late 70s, early 80s, and I can see the fear and the threat and the duck and cover and all that stuff, but I never really felt that was that was part of my life. It all sort of fished by the time I was old enough to recognise it was something that was going on. Um, and nowadays it seems more real because more power plant, power, nuclear power plants are more... They're more real, aren't they? They're coming up all over the place. We need that sort of energy to keep society going. Clean energy in a very loose sense because it works to an extent and then there's an issue, it becomes a massive issue. Um, so, yeah, a, a very interesting time. Again, not one that not one that I know, not one that I knew at the time, one that would have bypassed me entirely. Yeah, not, not to sort of you know, spend too much time on this, but um, I'm so glad that you two guys can sit there and say, 
I have ever lived through anything like this. And, you know, this is all history. That's yeah. great for me. So <laughs> I'm happy with that. I mean, thankfully, they did step back and start to commission nuclear war, etc. Um, but then, of course, the uh, the problem in Japan with their uh, nuclear power station, uh, you know, a tsunami comes in, wipes it out suddenly, the water all radioactive, and there's a big issue there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take much to knock these things out. No. It's, it's still a worry, isn't it? It's not, not a problem we've solved. And we still need the energy that they provide. We're still, we're still building them. We're building them in this country. Um, but those kind of problems have not been not really resolved. Yeah. I'm not an expert. It, well, all this talk of us not remembering as well. It's, uh, my wife is a teacher, secondary school teacher. She teaches kids who weren't around when probably the first big disaster of the 21st century was 9-11. And mm. she said in passing... Oh, you know, uh, you know. Imagine how your parents felt when they saw the Twin Towers on TV. And they said, what, "What's the Twin Towers? What were you talking <sighs> about?" And it wasn't that they didn't know 9/11; they just didn't know it at the Twin Towers because they they don't know New York with those two iconic buildings. Yeah. There. And you know, Chernobyl, people know it because now there's a TV show. But a few years ago, maybe that same generation would just think, "What's Cherno, Turner? What, what is this word? You know, it doesn't make any sense. They they can't picture." the nuclear power plant they can't picture the building they don't have any sense of it they just have a sense of radiation maybe if they've history book uh, but that's all they have but it, you know it's always gone on there's always a generation that doesn't quite have a connection to something you think is so earth shattering um right yes let's move on let's move on um, um but fantastic uh, conversation thank you guys uh not happy story in may of this year hands across america uh, it makes its way around the country. So, you know, it's hopeful and we're getting back to normal and, you know, it's everything coming together. Um, they're touching hands. I hope they've washed it, especially in the year that you're currently in. <laughs> um, in June of this year, uh, John Pollard is uh, placed trial for spying on behalf of Israel and uh, trading military U.S. secrets. So I don't know why I brought this up. It's almost like there might be a spy coming up. who <laughs> might be questioned about a few things, but this will be in the public knowledge as well. Um, in September, another disaster, uh, the Kamata earthquake in Greece uh, goes off, which uh, caused widespread devastation. Uh, happy story again, trying to get some happy in there. Uh, in October, my personal favourite musical, The Phantom of the Opera, has its first performance. So a bit of pop culture there for you. And uh, Iceland. Uh, in Iceland, there is the talks between the powers, the two World War powers, to uh, bring about a descaling of their nuclear missile capabilities, but it does end in failure. Now, the newspaper that the crew pick up in the stall says that talks end in failure. The release of this film was before those talks. Did they predict something again? Is this another time anomaly and maybe they picked something up? I don't know. And we're going to end the year. I'm going to do the sad story first, then the proper story. Uh, November, the sad story for the UK is mad cow disease. BSE uh, has been found in livestock, and we get a, you know, a health crisis in 1986. And it's almost like you know, there's another health crisis going on at the same time we're recording this as well. Um, any thoughts on this, especially with what's going on in the year that you're broadcasting from? Well, I didn't get to eat a, um, a second T-bone steak for 20 years. I'd just eaten T-bone steak. I thought, oh, this is my first ever T-bone steak. I had it for my 21st birthday. And then BSE happened, and you couldn't eat meat. Yeah, you, you couldn't. You could, everything was going to be called, and, and you know, all, all sorts of places were looking at you know, how they do things, cleaning everywhere, and 
I sound familiar, I must have. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's been so long. I have not had another T-Bone Dick since because they took them off the menu for a long, long time. Mm. I have more memory of this being, sort of, again, sort of the vernacular of the time, mad cow disease, BSE. I grew up knowing that those words were in the atmosphere, but the, the crisis itself I have no memory of. I'm much more, obviously much more afraid with the early 2000s when we, when we went through that whole thing again. That's where I feel like I have all my knowledge about what how, how the country would have been affected. But although I knew about it as a problem, I know that you know, we weren't exporting meat and uh, there was lots of restrictions on what we would do. I have, you know, the memory of the time is, is not one that is, is for me. I just, I don't have it, that in my head. Um, we're going to end on a nice story. Uh, in the same month, November 1986, the Polar Bear Satellite is launched. Now, this satellite uh, was sent up, it's just to get back to space more than anything else, but it was set up to study um, solar flares and their effect on technology at the time. So uh, solar flares that were um, looking to knock out satellites. So the polar bear was sent up to try and study it and possibly mitigate that problem. Um, the reason I say that is that we've already had a line from Spock saying we are possibly um, uh, visible to some of the technology of the period. Yes. And they're launching a satellite that does exactly that. That is there to study the atmosphere and is purposely looking at uh, the entire uh, surface of the planet as well as everything orbiting it. So it just made sense that it kind of linked up to that and a nice happy story rather than having to end on mad disease. <laughs> now, I'll do anything I can to try and make it happy again. Um, but in the words of a famous band, the Communards, who had the number one song for that year, don't leave me this way, let's get back to the happy times. <laughs> See? Hey, kids, it doesn't matter what you are. Punks, skins, rastas, mauds, rockers, Keith Tegrin even, everybody everywhere, stop smoking and pay attention to me. Because if you're a wild-eyed loner at the gates of oblivion, then hitch a ride with us. Because we're riding on the last freedom moped out of nowhere. And we haven't even told our parents what time we're coming home. So, put on your dancing trousers and get down to the total and utter king of rock and roll, Cliff Richard! Got myself a crying dog, sleeping, walking, living dog. Uh, had the scene where um, Kirk got rid of money for his glasses. Uh, quite valuable, but he only gets a hundred does, but don't splurge. And we get the punk on the bus. Uh, an exact change in all the buses. Thoughts on the buses in general, all the buses scenes? Uh, well, I love the fact that he goes and sets his glasses and spots sort of charges him briefly and says, they're the glasses that McCoy bought you. And he said, we'll do again. That's the beauty of this. And I love the fact that he was just happily engaging in a time loop and just like, yeah, this is okay. I'm back time now, so it'll figure itself out. Uh, I really like that. Uh, and the bus scenes are just just hilarious. They are really, really funny. Beyond what I thought even that like, I remembered. Uh, getting the bus and getting off the bus. What is the exact change? But that is so unnecessary. It's just a joke. <laughs> and it really is funny. Oh. <laughs> you, you could have not had that scene. It doesn't change anything, but it is so funny. Uh, and the punk on the bus. That guy is a legend now. Um we we I actually listened to the song this time, which is it's great. I'm a punk fan. He wrote that song. That's amazing. And uh, I read, I think, I think the same guy pops up in the Spider-Man films, where he's got the whole the whole boombox again. That's just fantastic. It's I brilliant. Love that. 
I love that. I love that. I, it's, I've written that down because it's my favourite uh, thing to come out of this film. The fact that this is not it's the same guy. Uh, he's, he was a friend of the producer of the Homecoming film, uh, films. They said, Can we, I just want you to put him, put, come in a cameo. But you boombox and we'll, we'll do it again. He did that. It's the same character. He's in this country. It's in a, <laughs> a different franchise. It means that Star Trek and Marvel films are in the same universe. Amazing. Amazing. We all knew. It's all real. We yes. all knew. Absolutely. Guardians of the Galaxy could bump into the Enterprise. Why not? Hang on a minute. I'm going to give it a try. No, I can't clip fingers. There's no, there's no Infinity Gauntlet. I can't get out of time bubble using that. But uh, yes, exactly. Spider-Man is in the uh, Star Trek universe. That's fantastic. Uh, Peter Parker exists, so maybe you know that. Maybe he got wind of all this new technologies, kind of PlexiCorp, and he wants to you know study this up. And he's the one who starts all the technology that possesses the Star Trek universe. I, I, I just love him to do another time travel episode. Pick a pick a series. Doesn't matter. Uh, Picard comes back to New York, bumps into Spider-Man. Or Iron Man, or any of them. It was so cool. Very good. I'd love it. <laughs> um, uh, yes, uh, uh, there's nothing else you can say. The punk scene is just iconic. I think it's just the one that stands out. Uh, my kids have seen this film. It's the one with Wales. Everyone's seen this film. Um, it's the one only film I can get my kids to watch. And that is one of the funniest ones. And little kids just love that moment that he just gets knocked out. But it also stops the music at the same time it's not that it just carries uh, on playing yeah, it, it just cuts it out it's such a well played scene yeah um we now cut to the institute and we meet jillian we meet our tour guide now this is the first time i've watched this film since becoming a tour guide myself and she delivers a fantastic tour the amount of information she gets across in such a short space of time and everyone's listening no one's off having a conversation at the back of the, the group there's not the guy at the front who's asking all the awkward questions like oh it's your fault there you go, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you're the kind of people we don't like. Um, but uh, and there's not the kid in the middle just busy p- poking his nose, and you know, just uh, can't be bothered to listen to what the old lady's saying. You know, oh, I'm not going to the whales. Oh, it's boring. Um, but she delivers a fantastic tour. Uh, but general thoughts on Gillian, the character. As a character, she's brilliant. Um, she seems very natural. She's a great actress. The way she just doesn't she never looks as though she's acting she's always a good way of, of spotting a you know a good performance um the reason she's she's um obviously got everybody's uh you know quiet and not saying anything is because we're all looking at spocks with a whale behind <laughs> they're not paying attention to what she's saying at all come on dan you should know this from being a tour guide nobody listens to you you're too busy watching other stuff sadly sadly it's true everybody it's very true if uh, something is going on site if you've got a whistling steam train going past everyone's looking at a steam train you have to wait for it to pass then you can carry on with the tour <laughs> no, but she's really good. I mean, uh, the character all the way through film. She's uh, she's intelligent. She's uh, bright. She's on the money. She doesn't take any BS. You know, she's she absolutely fantastic. Greatly, uh, brilliant written character, um, uh, especially for the eighties as well. You know, it's it's you know, she's not the lead by any means, but she is you know, in, a, in a large majority of the scenes. So uh, I, th- I think she's brilliant. Really good. They really did well picking him her as the as the actress for that part. She is. Uh, she's great. I did wonder. She's the assistant director of the institute, and she's giving the tours. I was like, wow. Maybe she just. Maybe you know. Maybe she's just not busy. She's just like the tours are the most important. Got to get the message out there. I like that bit. Um, and then when I mean later on, when the when the whales go, she doesn't know about it. I was like, I thought as the assistant director, she'd be getting all this stuff. 
<laughs> she could be getting memos. She could decide in this stuff. Um, poor, but, poor book communication, you know. I know every, every business has got book communication. Uh, but she is a fantastic character. And I know we'll talk about this later on, but the fact that she's still there at the end, that I, I felt like that was something we definitely should have seen more of. But we can talk about that later on. Yeah, no. I like it, at the, like you say, at the end, and I'm, we could come to this at the end. But she's all the way through, and she says goodbye to Kirk at the end of it. And she walks off, and he looks and goes, but we've not been to bed together. Wait. <laughs> yeah. uh, she doesn't fall for any of his charm. He doesn't try to use it, to be fair. But, you know, uh, you know, a fish out of water is probably not on, it, on his mind. He's thinking more about, you know, get back home first. But, um, yeah, she's, that's why I like it, because she's, she, she questions, I think he says, you know, you're not telling the truth. No, that's rubbish. That's baloney. Give me, you know, tell me the truth. I can take it. And then when, you know, when he does tell her, eh, she doesn't quite get it, but then, but doesn't write him off. She thinks about it. She, she drives, she drives off and he beam, you know, beams away behind her. She sort of back and goes, well, what did that happen? Oh. <laughs> she is, she is equal to Kirk. She's not the love, just love interest. It's not written off. That character isn't defined by the fact that she is love interest for Kirk or anything like that. She's an equal to him. She has a role to play and she has agency in the film and it's fantastic to see. And a theme for the 20th century. We started with Edith Keeler. She is, you know, um, the person who she's caring. She is the idealist and she could bring about the end of World War II or not even entering World War II. So that powerful character she is. She has to die unfortunately, but she's an amazing character. We have Alicia Travers in alternate timeline in 1944. We have all these female characters throughout the 20th century. We have Tamir, the great-great-grandmother of Paul. Um, fantastic female characters, strong leadership characters. It seems to be a theme for the 20th century. Um, she takes it so well whenever she discovers something new and weird about this crew. Even seeing Sock for the first time, unlike some of the crew that we saw last fall, who were frozen on the transport pad and unable to move, <laughs> she was she was absolutely fine. Um, we've uh, yeah, obviously uh, maybe he's singing with that man or singing with that man with uh, Spock in the pool. Um, the uh, deliberate sort of way that. Leonard Nimoy delivers the line of, you know, who caused their extinction. Just so that the audience heard it, and Gillian certainly heard it um, for later conversation. Then we discover the Enterprise, but there's not much to go on. They just discover the Enterprise. Do you want to say anything on that Chekhov's delivery of that line? It is the Enterprise. He's expecting something more, but uh, just didn't give it to him. I thought it was fine. I thought it was a nice little, a nice little nod. You know, it's fun. And it's nice because you now that. Star Trek as a franchise feeds back into the naming of shuttles and ships nowadays, so we know there's more of a connection there. It's more like art imitates life, imitates art. I like it. I think it has almost more resonance now than it may have in 1986. And, uh, of course, uh, anyone who might know this film knows that that's not really the Enterprise. It's the USS Ranger. Just let you know. Ranger. Uh, yeah, the Enterprise was out on manoeuvres at that time. Um, but uh, it's definitely got faith in heart, because we're moving on to... Um, <laughs> Uh, we've got LDS. Let's move to the LDS <laughs> scene. Uh, all of the talk between Spock, uh, Kirk and Spock, talking about lying. Uh, we've had another Vulcan who is willing to lie, Paul. We've had Carlton Creek, and now we've got Vulcans willing to lie again. Or exaggerate the truth, shall we say. And, of course, the LDS conversations. Any thoughts on these scenes? These are fantastic moments. Yeah, that's a good one. Again, and it shows uh, Gillian is not... You know, she's not taken in by it. She logs it for future reference. You can see, ah, oh, yes, L LDS. Yeah, okay, <laughs> hang on. You know, I know more about you know 
life at the moment than you do. So what's going on? You know, she's she did just you know slap them down straight away. She you know puts it to one side, let them just carry on. I'm sure eventually they'll get to the point and, and tell me why they're really here and what they're really after. And she just plays them along. You know, plays the line a bit just to see what what she's gonna catch. Uh, so yeah, again, it's another, it's another nice little scene. And it's solidly played for laughs as well. Uh, and you just get a sense of Nimoy's comic timing. Well, the hell you get a sense for his comic timing. Just as he's throwing in those really misused swear words. And it is genuinely <laughs> hilarious all the way through. And the way they the way they position him in the car. So they have, so, so Gillian and Kirk have to talk across Bob as if he's just like some big awkward lunatic that's happened to him and sort of lean across him in that organisation. It is really good. It dressed in something as though it looks as though it ties around the back rather than the front. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the, the calm timing you're saying about the um, when when they say you know do you like Italian and there's that yes no 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 yes yes yeah. no yeah, yes and so do you. Yeah. That was improvised. Oh, they, really? They, originally it was just a simple yes no, and then you know yes we'll go and do whatever. But they said but while they were on the set they said, let's just play with that let's see if we can, you know this, what, we, what we come up with. So and that just literally improvised and you can tell because it's not timed perfectly if, if you said you say yes and you say no and then you say no and you say yes you would time so that they both said it at the same time but this and then it ends with Shatner just turning around going and so do again all improvised and on the commentary when they talk about it they're both laughing because it was such a you know, they obviously enjoyed it and it came out so well keep it in the film it just works yeah perfectly. it is really oh, really good excellent um, yeah, there's nothing more I can say on that. It's just a fantastic scene. It always cracks me up. It's another one of those lines that appeared in the VHS advertor, uh, the advertising of the movies being released. Um, you had the Edith Keeler speech, and then you had this one, and it's Kirk saying, you're not exactly catching us at our best when they're talking about the old formats, and then this new VHS has come up, and of course, you know, talking about VS being a better quality. Um, Plexicorp now going to get to this point we're going to just encompass all of these scenes together because uh, I, I see that time is uh, coming up and um, we're already at an hour here. uh but plexicorp hello computer let's go <laughs> oh, yes the keyboard how quaint <laughs> yeah hello computer <laughs> yeah ross is doing a good impression of them. yeah that's it's it's just brilliant but the funny thing is of course we all know how computers work and he goes bashing away on the keyboard there and there's windows flying up and all sorts of things it's a for, for a start it's a matosh that they've stripped <laughs> the guts out and put an IBM inside it was supposed to be a Commodore Amiga but they wouldn't sell them one the um, or the, rather they wouldn't buy one the um it's running what looks like with a variation of Windows 3.1 which is probably if not even probably not even Windows it's that old you can't do that. You just don't do that. It's got a mouse. Use the mouse. Oh, the, no, you have to bash on keys. The crescendo typing when he starts typing and he just sort of cracks his knuckles and then just does one or two keys. It's like so much is happening with just one or two keys. <laughs> and then it just rallies up. Then he's murder she roasting it at the end. <laughs> it's absolutely wild. And the guy's eyes get wider and wider. It's, it's hilarious. It's so good. Murder she roasting. I've got to use this That's brilliant. Oh, I've got to figure out a way of making that into the title of the episode. Murder she wrote it. <laughs> just, just everything. I mean, even down to the not now, Madeline Dean. Uh, it's just perfect comedy timing with everybody again. Uh, they work so well. Um, 
that's the whole film because they, they put so many jokes in this film it does not need it could be so serious and so tense and they've made it a comedy by putting in bits that are funny and don't add to the story they just make the entire thing joyful and sort of pleasant to watch so yeah the not now madden's another great one again Zotti leaning into like we can we can just change change the timeline that'll be fine we'll just go back through if he invents it pro- no problem that's absolutely perfect yeah that's, that's the strange thing because it was actually invented in 2009 so there you go we do have transparent aluminum um <laughs> Just, just totally, it's a man obviously it's not it's not transparent aluminium because that's a totally different word with different letters <laughs> so, uh, so maybe, maybe it is a thing I don't know maybe that's what they did over in America but over here in, in Oxford we actually invented uh, uh, transparent aluminium in 2009 so there you go well, yes. um, yeah I can't tell many times in my uh, Starfleet Academy classes in my engineering classes I had to correct the American pronunciation on that it's just too many times my hand just had to go up um, yes well, actually yes so that's two time loops we've alluded to uh, in this movie. Maybe that will play into our continuity later on. As you heard, we were having too much fun reviewing this episode, so we're going to stop this review of uh, the Star Trek IV Voyage Home 1986, and we will continue in part two of this look into the one with the whales. Thank you very much for listening, and tune in next time for the concluding part of The Voyage Home. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at rider underscore coattail or contact me directly at hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore hitch underscore writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But, if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream.